0: You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, live in, in the morning. We're way off to the west. I can see Good Fish Lake, Alberta. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. Today, this is going to be terrific. Bruce Croxon is with us. Bruce is the Managing Partner, Round 13 Capital. We're going to get into his history a little bit with Lava Life. Bruce, I'm excited to talk to you because you're also a DMZ Advisory Council member. Welcome to the Movers and Shakers Podcast.
1: Uh, great to be here. I'm a proud member of the Ryers and DMZ Advisory Council, big supporter of Canadian tech. So I, I feel like I'm in the right place today.
0: Well, in fact, right on the Round 13 Capital site, round13.com, partnering with Canada's best growth stage companies. I can't wait to get into it. Let's talk a little bit about your history. So background. You're a lifelong entrepreneur, over 30 years experience. Bruce is, as I said, the managing partner at Round 13 Capital. He's dedicated to helping, as he said, Canadian growth stage companies grow, digital companies in particular. He's a co-host of The Disruptor, BNN's original TV program that spotlights Canadian digital innovators and innovations. Bruce's own entrepreneurial voyage began in 1988, I understand. 1988, when he co-founded Lava Life, but not as Lava Life. Life. Bruce, can you tell us about your entrepreneurial journey and more importantly, the pain points along the way? As you said off the top, it is a lifelong journey for me. 88, when we got
1: onto the origins of of Lava life I'd been at it many years before that with different projects and got different things to different levels and Made a living as an entrepreneur, but certainly was not hitting the ball out of the park by any means. Paid the rent, put food on the table, but I didn't consider myself a successful entrepreneur. And and in the late 80s, we came across a technology that we all sort of know as voicemail. It's called interactive voice response is the technology. And it was really before the time of voicemail, and, and we started monkeying around with that brand new technology to see what we could do with it from a marketing or messaging or communication standpoint. And started advertising different events at clubs, and everyone thought the future of the industry was going to be talking ads. And it was a typical story of a technology in its infancy trying to find its way. And over time... Really through experimentation and, you know, it being the first time on something we take so much for granted today, which is the ability of technology to measure people's responses and behavior and then take action following what that data tells you. This was really the beginning of the digital age in the late 80s where you could actually measure what people like to do online And what we found, to make a long story short, was, you know, sure, classified advertising, who's playing at what club tonight, talking ads, weather reports, for sure. But the killer app turned out to be people that wanted to meet each other. And I would say we stumbled on that just by being in the market, being committed to being entrepreneurs, finding the right level for technology to meet a human need. And out of that came a brand called TelePersonals, where people would leave voicemail messages for each other and connect while they were online, picking up their messages and send messages real time. And it was the first kind of real community um, using technology. And it's something, obviously, we take so for granted today. I mean, every, every online web platform is a community in and of itself, but I would suggest this was the first. And that technology and the whole concept of online personals was pioneered by four guys out of Toronto with, without a ton of formal education. Just like I said, being committed to being entrepreneurs and, and, and trying to line up, you know, supply with consumer demand. And it It happened to be a new category to boot, so
0: it was particularly exciting for us. I don't even know how to draw the parallels. If you or someone else was to launch a similar type of service today with the technology, as you say, and the app infrastructure and all that, if you compare that to what it was like back when you founded Lava Life or TelePersonals back in the 80s, your whole approach, yes, you're relying on technology. As you say, it's the first community, but it was a telephone. I don't know how you get Mm -hmm. your head around what somebody would do today compared to what you did back then.
1: Well, interesting. You know, you're right in that, you know, you didn't think of a, a, of a phone line as we would think of an internet line today and all the capabilities that that brings with it. But really, why was it so different? You know, it really is a way to transport data, digitize data. It should come as no surprise that, you know, the phone line really evolved, I guess, to the internet which evolved to wireless, not needing an actual pipe to send digits down it in order to understand something at the other end. And then, you know, if you look to today, we're seeing so much about the blockchain, right, which is, again, another extension of In this case, a decentralized technology that doesn't rely on any central server. If you think about it, it, it's kind of a logical extension to community. The the whole concept of people chipping in and out of many comes one. And, And really, that is the premise behind Bitcoin and blockchain and some of the innovative applications that we're seeing today. Listen, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm good at recognizing new ideas. I am a far cry from a visionary. I could not tell you what the next big technology is going to be. I think one of the positive things about my career is that I've been pretty good at hopping on them early and trying to figure out whether they've got commercial
0: potential or not. So talking about that specifically, at Lava Life, telepersonals, all the things that go in with personals, pets, furniture, apartments, but you evolved to Lava Life, a dating website over 2 million users. Let's talk about pivoting. How and when did you know? What signs did you recognize that we can share with other entrepreneurs? How do you know when it's time to pivot? This is The
1: great thing about starting technology-based businesses then, and I would argue strongly that it's the greatest attribute of of starting digital-based businesses today, the data doesn't lie, right? So if you put an offering out on the Internet to sell a pair of sneakers, and as long as you get the right exposure and get it in front of the right people, you're going to be told very quickly whether the price you're asking for those sneakers is correct, whether they prefer that pair of sneakers to another pair of sneakers, whether the avenues that you're using to target your audience are effective or not in terms of how much it, has, it costs you to reach them. The data is all available and the tools are now all available. All the tools that you would imagine you could, used as a consumer, are available, obviously, to small, medium, and large businesses. And this generation of entrepreneurs that has grown up online, some would argue spending a disproportionate amount of their time online and following the the zigs and the zags. I mean, the benefit of that is that you've got a, a very intelligent workforce and a host of entrepreneurs that are launching today that are able to test and measure what the data is telling them as they work to build their business. So we were no different. What, for the very first time in the late 80s, and then when we launched the website in the, in the mid-90s, we would put something out there as an idea. And using your example, were people more interested in classifieds for selling their used furniture, or were they more interested in meeting each other? And the overwhelming data-based response, you know, when you hit print on the DOS-based computer back in the late 80s to see what people had been doing online, the overwhelming response was, oh, my God, look how many people are interested in meeting each other. And by contrast, look how few people are really interested in who's playing at the horseshoe on Saturday night, right? So it told us that this was the biggest opportunity. And, you know, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. It's that guy named Maslow who had that hierarchy of needs, you know, went food, shelter, and then you're looking for someone to lie down beside at night. So we didn't have to convince anybody that there was a real human need. But nonetheless, it was really exciting and gratifying the response when we
0: put different ideas out there and the real compelling ones rose to the top. So I want to talk in a second about raising capital, but you keep coming back to data and interpreting data, using data, reading data. What happened? If an entrepreneur in any industry has got all this data and doesn't interpret it properly or who should they go to to help them interpret it properly? I'm concerned that we're going to be pumping out the message, get your data, read your data, pivot or change, but you have to interpret that damn stuff properly.
1: Yeah, you do. You know, Robert, I haven't seen too many businesses that you can't look at through, through this lens that I'm going to kind of describe and that lens is, and it doesn't really matter to me whether it's a direct-to-consumer or a business-to-business application. The questions are, where are you getting your customers, right? What is it costing you to get those customers? So that that's really just math. You know, it's like how much you're spending in marketing as the numerator and the denominator is the number of customers that you get to sign up for your service or, or buy your product. So, you know, how much are you paying to get them? What are they worth to you over time? i.e. is it a one sale and done? You measure your marketing return based on that one-off sale that you get them to buy a piece of furniture, for example. Are they going to come back? Are they going to tell their friends? And then, you know, what is their propensity to hang around and continue to be a customer of you, right? So that you can extend your marketing spend over X number of months or years. You know, if you think about business, you take everything from a coffee shop, physical location to the largest Amazon retailer. I can't think of too many examples where you can't overlay that way of looking at a business, right? So when you want to link that to funding and putting a compelling opportunity in front of an investor it's if you understand those pillars and you can come to an investor and say, listen, I'm attracting my customers for X amount less than what they're worth to me over a reasonable period of time. And by the way, I'm getting my marketing dollars back in nine months or six months or three months or in some cases, 12 months. And if I only had you know, a couple more million dollars to put into sales and marketing. Here's why I believe I could continue with these same economics and accelerate the growth of my business. So that's a blueprint for, you know, a basic way to start interpreting data. And it's pretty easy to pick apart the math. If you've got the denominator wrong because you haven't included all your spending on marketing, that will be pointed out or you've got to learn what the correct input is there. But other than that, that's pretty basic math. And I think where a lot of companies go wrong is, you know, they've got too much faith that although they're not making the money from the customer today, there's some belief that eventually the money will come with no sort of proof as to why that might be the case, or they have to spend too much money to get a customer and the payback is too long. Those are the metrics that separate good businesses from great businesses. And I guess uh, good businesses as well from businesses that are kind of destined to fail.
0: I think that you laid it out really well. And if our if our listeners can make a spreadsheet of your various pipelines there and, and those pillars, I think it's a it's fantastic way to analyze and look at data. Let's talk about raising capital. Always a problem for our entrepreneurs, always a problem. But your Mm -hmm. portfolios include Belzex Coffee, Sprig Software, Carbon Fiber, a lot more. Your investments tend to be, as I understand it, digital media, marketing, and corporate and social responsibility. On Dragon's Den and as a managing partner at Round 13 Capital, you have seen millions, hundreds, thousands, I don't even know anymore pitches. I've seen a zillion pitches. You've probably seen 10 times that. And you've also seen guys Mm -hmm. successfully secure funding and not secure funding. So let's talk about this because it's such a headache across the country when it comes to capital raising. What do founders tend generally to overlook the most and where do they waste the most time when they're trying to raise capital?
1: Oh, yeah. Good question. I mean, I'll point back to the pillars that I outlined in our previous paragraph there on measuring the data and making the numbers add up as the thing that needs to be a bit more time spent on it in general when people come in and pitch. And again, you have to look at ideas at different stages too, right? I mean, if somebody's coming in with a clean, fresh idea that has no proof points, like genuinely a seed stage idea. It's it's obviously a very different presentation than if you've been grinding away for a year, you have some of the data that I've alluded to, uh, and you can put together a compelling case as to why, you know, if you only had a bit more capital, it could fit nicely into a growth formula that you've already effectively proven. So those are two very, very different pitches. You know, I will take the opportunity to say you're right. Like I have seen a ton of pitches being an entrepreneur, I'm I'm an optimist by nature. So, you know, ninety percent of the pitches that I see, I can get excited about. I mean, I'm an idea guy. I could see how that pitch could be made to work or that idea could be made to work. And I tend to get overly optimistic that whoever's you know, presenting and pitching can can actually make it work. Well the reality is, the hard reality is that you know most startups and early stage businesses don't work, right? So really, it's about, at the end of the day, one of the most important things is the actual team and and entrepreneurs themselves. Because I can almost guarantee, especially as you move earlier in the cycle, and the examples you gave all came to me as early ideas, and they were all personal investments. So very, very different than what we do at round 13. And if you want to see the the kind of businesses we back, just yeah, encourage your listeners to to visit round thirteen capital we've got twenty seven portfolio companies and they're mostly tech software companies that are well on their way growth wise so they're they're firmly established but you know in terms of the early ideas i don't see too many that I can't get excited about, but it really comes down to you know the team and how effective the team is and Because I can pretty well guarantee on those earlier ones, if you flash forward two or three years, if they're still in business, the idea doesn't look exactly the same as when they pitched it, right? They've gone through a number of pivots and changes and things that they've learned on the fly that have resulted in a different outcome. So really, it's about trying to measure the character of the people. I would say, look, when you come in and pitch, Try and get to know, try and let your personality come through. Try and convince the investor that you've got what it takes for the inevitable ups and downs that are going to come. Develop a relationship uh, because the people part of this business is actually uh, one of the most important, if not the most important thing at the end of the day because ideas will change. They come and go. And, And in fact, I've seen some really crackerjack teams. Turn a so so idea into gold, and I can't tell you the number of great ideas, in my view anyway, great ideas that have ended up in the trash can because he's a bit dysfunctional or didn't have what it took to make it fly.
0: One of the things I want to add to that is I often find people buy on emotion and justify with logic. So if you could present properly, and I agree, it's all about the people present properly, get your pitchy, all excited, make sense of the whole thing, and then justify with logic by bringing out the documents that the accountant prepared and your spreadsheets and your valuations and let your potential investor pass those logic-based documents onto their advisor and you just keep them excited with the passion.
1: I love that order that you distinguish, right? Because that is very true. So, you know, often if I'm pitching something or talking about round 13, for example, I will go in and tell the story. Just tell the story and let's get to know each other through the storytelling. So, I love what you just said there because you could go in back-based, right, and spitting it out and like a machine and, you know, do the backup first, right? Because the data doesn't lie, as we just said. But, you know, I I love that
0: distinction. So, thanks for that. Well, I often found when I was working with clients and going to the banks or to the investors, And they would say, okay, bring in all the spreadsheets. No, 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 no. You sit, you tell the story, you be passionate. I'll be good guy, bad guy. I'll bring out the data later and we can mull over that. But you get them going. So other than people, are there two other things that you have to evaluate before you commit to an investment?
1: There's a lot of, I think, really good ideas that maybe after markets that aren't big enough, right? Or where there's already a lot of people playing. I don't know, like I'm a golfer, right? And I've always thought, geez, it'd be great to like do this app where you could really line up the right golf ball with what you should be playing with your level or skill as a golfer, right? Okay, great. That's a great little niche idea. It's something that I've always wondered, well, should I be playing this ball or not? You know, blah, blah, blah. But that's a relatively small area of interest in a relatively small market, right? So We call that TAM, Total Addressable Market. So you can have the best idea in the world. If the market size is, you know, me, you, and the guy down the street, and we're all passionate users, that's still not going to make a business that's investable or, or has room for you as the entrepreneur and me as the investor, right? So I would say it's team, you know, market size, and then I guess you definitely are into Scaling. Because one of the truisms today, and it's very different than when I first started in business, is it's never been easier to start up a business today. Like the, the cost has come out of the technology. As you and I have already discussed today, the data is readily available to everybody. You know, if you gave me one hundredth of the money and one, one hundredth of the time, I could knock off the Life system today and have a personal platform up, you know, in two and a half months. There's no barrier to entry there. So, you know, you need to be able to move very quickly. You have to know that competition is not going to be far behind you. So, you know, how much competition is there existing already? And does the team have the right combination of skill, urgency, uh, openness to take in money, because it is going to cost capital to grow quickly, then you are back, you know, in many ways to the makeup of the team and their determination and ability to move fast. But what I'm trying to get at there is not only the size of the market, but how many players are already there and what's the likelihood that one of the big players can easily, with a pivot, take your market away from you.
0: So, how about how much should we raise? I often run into entrepreneurs, they go, Well, I, I just need 250 and then I'll get the next five, and then I'll finally need a million. I go, No, no, that's <laughs> ridiculous. You need to aim high from the beginning. What do, what do yeah. you think, Bruce?
1: Well, I agree with you, especially if it's there, right? We've been in a, a cycle the last sort of five to six, seven, eight years uh, where there's been a lot of capital available, right? So, there's a relatively large amount of capital chasing. You know, a large number of deals, but it shouldn't be too hard with a compelling team and an idea to get an audience. So if the capitals there take it, that's a general statement, because it's always going to take more money than you think, because you're not going to hit your top line revenues and, you know, things will be more expensive and you you won't be as efficient as the deck says, you know, you think you're going to be. So it's going to take more than you think. You're at the table anyway. Fundraising is a pain in the ass. When you're out fundraising, you're not growing your business. So it's very distracting. So if you're at the table and someone's offering you a million and you only wanted to raise 500, my first advice is to take the million. And the overarching compelling reason to do that is back to what I said before. As soon as you get a sniff of success that you've hit a market or a vein of gold that is worthy of growing into... Rest assured, you're going to have somebody on your heels um, as soon as the word of that gets out. So you need to move faster. and And the only way you move faster, or most of the ways that you're going to move faster, involve people and sales and marketing. And that costs money. So you're going to need more.
0: And, you know, I just want to throw in, when you say people, I immediately think of the three pillars to support a business. That's people, process, and technology. You need all three to make any any, any business work. Bruce, there's a handful hundred percent. There's a handful of name brand entrepreneurs in Canada and you're one of them. There must be something that I haven't asked you, you've never been asked in the zillion interviews you've done, that you really would like to share. What what would that one point be that nobody's asked you?
1: <laughs> well, that nobody's ever asked me. Oh my goodness. That's a great question. Why do you do what you do? Right. People, I think, on the uh, from the outside looking in, you can be tempted to glamorize entrepreneurs. You're reading the headlines and if you've had any success, people are sort of talking about it and they've written about it. I ended up on the Dragon's Den show for a while, which is biased definition designed to make you look more successful than you really are. And smarter than you really are. So we live in a social media world where everything looks fantastic from the outside in. Those of us that are true entrepreneurs and have spent their career doing what we do know that's a load of crap, right? It's a life that's made up of a number of highs, but also a number of lows. The tough times are a grind, particularly early in your career when you're starting to get something up and going. Never make the mistake of, lining up the amount of hours you put into something with what your bank account looks like, because that's never going to make any sense. You know, if you try and put normal metrics on getting paid for the time you put into something. So it really is a labor of love. I mean, I don't get asked a ton about, you know, what is it, what is it that drives you, right? What is it that made you push through all that stuff? Was it worth it? Everyone just assumes that, well, it must be great. Well, I can tell you, and the stats will back me up. I mean, people struggle, right? And it it can be an awful, lonely choice. So, you know, part of my message to aspiring entrepreneurs, well, let's break it down into two parts. One is when it gets really tough, hang in there, because if you're doing the right thing and you've got the right people around you, you will prevail. The math might not make sense on paper, but you will prevail. You'll You'll get there. But the other message is you have to be really committed because it really isn't for everybody. And if you're lying awake at night or, you know, you're not happy or you're not, you know, you're kicking the dog when you walk in or you're not a good husband or or wife or parent to your kids because of the stress that being an entrepreneur causes you, it might not be for you, right? So it's glamorous from the outside. The inside is a lot different. Kick something you love because when you're, working on your business on a Sunday. It might not seem so much like work and make no mistake you are going to have to be working on it on a Sunday because your competitors are and it's just the nature of the game. You're trying to do more with less and it's helpful if you if you really are truly into it and it's something that you really that figured out is going to bring you satisfaction.
0: You have to bring your passion, Bruce. We get questions from across the country. When we announce that you are a guest, we ask for rapid fire questions. So if you're ready, quick questions, one word or two word answers sure. off the top of your head. Here we go. Believe it or not, they actually come in from across the country. Favorite vacation spot? Jamaica. Any startups on your radar that our listeners should keep an eye out on or for? Yeah, anything
1: to do with the blockchain. If you don't understand it or you're not uh, embracing it or learning about
0: it, get at it because it's the next wave. I have to tell you, I've seen examples where blockchain in the energy sector, energy supply and delivery sector, cuts down internal processes and calculations from days and hours to minutes. It's quite unbelievable. So yeah, I, I am with you good, there. A good example. Favorite part about being an entrepreneur?
1: Favorite part of being an entrepreneur for me as an investor now is the satisfaction of watching small companies become medium-sized companies.
0: Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Hire and partner for values, train for skill. Worst advice you've ever been given? Prioritize technical skill over core value fit.
1: Favorite Canadian startup
0: success story other than one of your own?
1: I'm a good friend of uh, Jim Treliving, so I love the Boston pizza story. I'm also a huge fan of the Shopify guys and what they were able to create out of selling some very basic things. So there's two examples in
0: two very different spaces. And we had one of the Shopify guys on as a uh, Movers and Shakers guest. They have a great story. Great. What he missed the most was being a DJ at the company parties during the COVID times. <laughs> That's great. What are you watching on Netflix these days?
1: I'm watching uh, Yellowstone. I don't think it's Netflix. What is it on? It's it? on Prime. I, it's, it's, it's amazing.
0: it Prime. It's fantastic, Amazon isn't Prime. it? on Prime, yeah. It is great. I'm, yeah, I'm, well,
1: and I, I'm a big fan of westerns, right? So they're hard. They're, the modern westerns are hard to find.
0: They're not cranking them out like they used to. So I enjoy that. If you could, if you can find it still on Netflix, Hell on Wheels. It's a western. It's a story about the town. Watched ha- it. Did you Saw watch it? it? Saw it. Building it,
1: the railroad. That was great. It's yeah.
0: fabulous. Yeah. It's seven seasons right from beginning to end. Okay. Last question. What industry will be gone in five years? Oh my goodness. What industry will be gone in five years? Listen, give
1: me 10, and I will say the brick-and-mortar car
0: dealership, I think, is on its way out. Well, you know, with Carvan and these other companies that deliver the cars to you, I can see that. But, you know, you could take a look at any of those, whether it's car dealerships or real estate brokerages, and any of these service delivery kind of things that can just come to you and be replaced with online technology could be gone?
1: Depending on the category, you know, as you as you go up in value, this has got longer life to it because the, the buying decisions are more important. But if you think about the pressure that brokers and agents in general are under as it becomes easier and easier to make your own decisions because of the tools available around wealth management, around buying real estate, around buying an automobile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, about buying online, without a salesperson. Brokers, agents, you can be helpful, but you're going to get squeezed, right? And I think that squeeze has already begun.
0: And you see this with all these uh, special deal real estate shops opening up, no commission, 1% commission, whatever it might be. Yes, the world is changing. Bruce Croxon, Managing Partner, Round13 Capital, round13.com. Bruce, thank you for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast.
1: You're most welcome, Robert. Have a great rest of the day.
0: It was a terrific, terrific episode. Once again, I want to say thank you for listening. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Benigold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to know what a great innovative CPA firm can do for your business, check us out at BeneGold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night. Good fish lake, Alberta. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.